As you read the passage, God's nothing if he's not thorough. <laughs> wasn't just the Red Sea, wasn't just the streams, it was even the assistance that people had already gone and got while before the water turned to blood, also turned to blood. That's pretty thorough. God's nothing if he's not thorough. Well, today we're starting our new series. Last week we wrapped up the series asking who is Jesus and we spent that series through January and February looking at different things that Jesus did, Jesus taught and what Jesus lived out and established, if you like, a bit of a court case, looking at the evidence as to who Jesus is and last week we came to, we brought all of that together and concluded our series saying, well, based on that, I made the claim that Jesus is actually God the Son in human form. So this week, we're starting a series in Exodus, and this series um, is going to stretch right through to the end of May. And it's going to be a really fun series if it comes out how I would like it to come out in my head. <laughs> it's a messy place in there, but... <laughs> This could be a lot of fun. And so last series was looking at who is Jesus and what Jesus did. And this series is going to be looking a bit more as to why Jesus did what he did. If Jesus is the Son of God, as we concluded last week, then why did he do what he did and that we had studied the last two months? And that's the point of this series in Exodus. If Jesus is God the Son, then God the Son, along with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, were there in Egypt at this time, in heaven. Okay? There's something to get your head around, but God the Son was there. If they are God, there's always been a triune God since before Genesis 1.1. So God the Son is here at this moment in in Exodus, in Israel's history, and we're going to be looking at why Jesus did what Jesus did throughout this series. And we're going to start it with looking at the ten plagues, and that's going to lead us up into Easter, and then after Easter we're going to follow the Israelites in the desert and look at some of the um, incidents and events in the desert and look at Jesus as well in that. So that's the plan for the series. So today is very much a setup. Let's get ready to spend this time in Exodus. And we're going to also look at the first of the plagues today. So that's the plan for today. So before we start, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a great God. We thank you that you are in complete control of absolutely everything. And we know that you were in complete control in Exodus. We know you are in complete control when Jesus hung on that cross. And we know that you're in complete control now this morning as we meet here and look at your word. I pray that your Holy Spirit comes and opens our ears and opens our eyes to what you're saying to us today. So that we can be who you want us to be. And that you will shape us, not us shape you, into your likeness, Lord. And we pray to you for these things in your son's name. Amen. Now, I've just outlined the basic idea on the series and where we're going. 
One, one of the things I love about preaching is not just hearing my own voice. I get to hear that all the time when I talk to the mirror. What I love about preaching is actually the preparation for the sermon because I learn so much. It's the best part of preaching is actually the preparation because I learn so much. And one of the things I learned from the preparing of this, and you may already know this, you may not know this, but one thing I found fascinating was that the ten plagues that we're going to work through, as I said, leading up to Easter, and we're going to come to the tenth one on Good Friday, is the fact that they weren't just randomly picked by God just to because that's how he felt that day. They're all deliberately aimed at something. And I found that absolutely fascinating, that there was actually a, a deliberate, definite reason behind every single plague. And we're going to come to that today. We're going to look at the first one today. Um, but I found that absolutely fascinating. So before we get to the first plague, there's a couple of things we need to do to set up our series. And the first one, which I like to do with all series, and that is look at, let's look at Exodus as a book and consider who wrote it, when they wrote it, why they wrote it. Let's just get a basic idea on this book of Exodus. And firstly, who wrote it? Anyone? Moses. Moses is the widely accepted author, and that is fairly true. I say fairly true because it's pretty widely accepted that down through the centuries, it has been edited to a degree. Now, there's generally about three other sources, along with Moses, who've contributed to the book of Exodus. How much they've contributed and how much each source has is widely debated, and we're not going to bother with it for this series. It's outside our scope. But there, over the years, there has been a little bit of editing to what Moses originally wrote, but Moses is considered the primary author, and that's good enough for us today. If you really want to dive in deeper and get to know these other sources and all that sort of academic stuff, come see me afterwards and I can refer you to a, a textbook, okay? A nice big thick theology textbook which you'll need a trolley to wheel into your house and all that sort of stuff, but I can do that for you if, you, if you're interested. When was it written? Well, logically speaking, it's going to have been written while the Israelites were travelling around the desert because he's speaking about events past, i.e. the ten plagues have already happened when Moses is writing this book. And if you think about it, did Moses ever enter the promised land? No, Moses didn't enter the promised land. So... Therefore, by definition, if Moses is the primary author like we just accepted, then it had to be written as the Israelites are walking around the desert. When did that happen? Again, widely debated. I would suggest if you went to about 1500 BC, you're going to be in the ballpark by 100 years either way sort of thing. About 1500 BC is the time frame we're talking. So that's when. Who's the audience? Why did Moses decide to write Exodus? And basically, he was writing it for the Jews. He was writing it for the Israelite nation so that 
when they got to the promised land and they started to inhabit the, the promised land, they could look back at this and be reminded. Okay? Reminded of what's gone on. Which brings us to the purpose. Okay, so his audience is the Israelites. Why is he writing it for them? To remind them of how good God is. To remind them of what God has done for them. Because by this point, as he's writing, they're in the desert, remember? He's reminding them how good God is, how patient God is with them, how much God loves them and is helping them despite the way they respond to God. So that's why he's writing it. And hopefully you will see as this series progresses that as we look at the Jews and how fickle they are and how they respond to God's goodness and God's directions and leading and provision and all the rest and we know in advance, spoiler alert, if you have never read Exodus in your life, the, the Israelites don't actually respond that well to God. But we're no better today. <laughs> we're the other side of the cross. We're talking about 3,500 years later. We're actually not a lot better. We don't whinge about manna, but we whinge about other things, don't we? We don't whinge about a lack of water, but we whinge about a lack of money. We want better toys. We want a nicer house. We don't want to have to sit in the traffic lights. We don't want to have to... God doesn't provide what we want, when we want, how we want, and so therefore God's bad. Well, who's God? Your servant? But today, we are actually not that much better than the Jews. God does amazing things for us, yet... How do we respond more often than not? We whinge. We complain. We feel ripped off. And hopefully that will be a bit of a challenge. And the, the point of this series is not only just to ask the question, why did Jesus do what he did, which is what we just studied, but hopefully it will help us to see the Israelites differently, to see God differently, and to see ourselves differently as we work through this series and see the connection between the three differently. And so by doing that, it'll help us to grow in our relationship with God, each other and the community as we understand ourselves in God and related to the Israelites. So that sound pretty good? Cool. Well, what I want to do before we get into the first plague is... I actually want to do a bit of a, a flyover of Exodus, just quickly to bring us up to speed as to where we are in Exodus. And so we're going to start at the beginning of Exodus. We're going to start at chapter 1, verse 1. Joseph's passed away at this point. At the end of Genesis, Jacob dies. The brothers are there. They think Joseph's going to get revenge on them. And so they try and do their best sucking up to Joseph and Joseph goes, you're a bunch of gooses. It's all good. God used your stupidity for his benefit to save your sorry little. And so that's all happened. We now move into Exodus and it's a couple hundred years later. Population has boomed at this point. And the Israelites, 
There's a great, great crowd of them. And so the Pharaoh at the time just has this genius idea that at some stage, if this carries on, the Israelites are going to rise up and overtake the Egyptians and then... So he decides to make them slaves, servants, lowest of the low. You're going to serve us. And what do you think the Israelites did when, when the Egyptians declared that? They didn't chuck a party. They hated it. They thought it was awful. They didn't like it one iota. And it should remind us that today we're actually no better. God says to us, and we read it in Mark, we looked at it a few weeks ago, what does God say to us? Those who are greatest in God's kingdom are those who do what now? What a rhetorical question, people. Serve. Become low. Those who serve the most now become the greatest in God's kingdom. You want to become great in God's kingdom, you become low now. You serve everyone else. Even the Son of Man, the God, the Son in human form, number God, part of the triune God, being there before Genesis 1, didn't come to earth to be served. He came to earth to serve. And so he commands his church, his people, to serve. He didn't command his church to sit on the glory box and go, okay, world, you need to love us. He said, you go love the world. You go serve. You get off your sorry little... and be a part of the world. Don't be characterised by the world, but be in the world. Serve the world. Love the world. Be different from the world. And the Jews didn't like it then, and the church doesn't like it now. But that's what God commanded. And no church has genuine, healthy kingdom growth until they work that out. There might be superficial growth. They might play fancy songs and grow to a couple hundred people because people like the concert feel. But no church genuinely has kingdom growth until they work out that it's not about being served, it's about serving. We spoke last week or the other week about the growth of a church and most churches measure it by what? The ABC. Attendance, bank accounts and church buildings. And that's what they deem as healthy church. If you've got a big bank account, if you've got lots of butts on seats, if you have a really fancy church building, then you must be a good healthy church. And in what we then proposed was that's actually not very good account of how to measure church growth. What's better is discipleships, evangelism and fruit of the spirit. And if a church has those three things in abundance, that's a healthy church. Yeah? And that's what this church should be looking to do. Focus on discipleship. Focus on evangelism. What's evangelism? Building relationships with people. It's not going out in the street corners and ramming the gospel down their throat then making sure they take ten gospel tracks home. It's building relationships. Living your life connected with their life and in living, to, living with each other as friends, as neighbours, as work colleagues, as the person you play golf with, whoever, whatever, as they get to know you better, they see something different in you. And when they see something different in you, they go, what is different about you? 
Then you can share the gospel. You earn the right to share the gospel by having a relationship with people. Now, I've gone completely off track, but that had to be said. If this church wants to grow, all of that needed to be said. Now, yes, that's a big sidetrack, but we're going to get back to Exodus now. So the Israelites are great in number. They get made slaves. They don't like it, just like the church doesn't like it today. And the numbers continue to grow. So what does Pharaoh do? The genius that he is decides to kill all baby boys. Well, that's a well-thought-out plan, isn't it? China found that out about four decades ago. Let's have a one-child policy, and now they work out, oh, that's actually not such a smart idea because of all the social ramifications of that because in that culture the son looks after the parents and if you have a daughter, you're gone. There's no super, there's no age pension in China. And so just like that, Pharaoh works out, oh, let's just kill all the baby boys. So what does God do? Moses' mother has a baby boy, so God goes, not only am I going to save him, I'm actually going to let him grow up in the house of the person who actually ordered this kid to be killed. How's that for irony? God has a wonderful sense of humour. Then Moses stays there until he's about 40 years old. Moses lives in the palace till he's about 40. He's out walking one day and he sees Egyptians oppressing some Jews. So what does he do? He beats up the Egyptian, kills him, buries him. And what do the Jews do? Thank you so much. That was really beginning to hurt. No. The Jews go, you're gone. Gratitude was underwhelming. How's that for a little window into the future? (laughs) You want a little hint as to how this is going to play out? (laughs) That story right there is a pretty good little window. So then Moses takes off and he's a shepherd for 40 years in the wilderness looking after sheep. Just a fraction more irony, you think? (laughs) Leading sheep around the wilderness. (laughs) And they still made more sense than the Israelites did after they left them. (laughs) So then after 40 years of listening to... God comes in the form of a burning bush that doesn't burn and says, Moses, why don't you get it back? And what does Moses do? The same thing you and I would do and the entire Western church does today. They offer every excuse under the sun to do the very thing that God has told them not to do. And they avoid and avoid and avoid and avoid and God goes, do this, and the church goes, "Ah, I can't do that, I don't want to... And Moses did that as well. Moses gave every excuse under the sun to not go back to Egypt and obey God. And why did God go, oh, I'm really sorry, I didn't want to hurt your feelings? God goes, yeah, tell your story walking. You're going back. And so Moses goes back and he meets up with his brother Aaron, who's three years his senior, and they start talking to, they first go to the Israelites and they tell the Israelites what's going on and God and the burning bush and Israelites go, awesome. So then Moses speaks to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh goes, yeah, nah. I don't like that. And then 
In response to the year nah, Pharaoh then makes the life of the Jews easier, harder. Does he break out the deck chairs? No, he makes their life harder. He makes them work harder. The punishments become more severe. And so what do the Jews do? What do the Israelites do at this point? Anyone want to hazard a guess? No, we didn't read it. Anyone want to hazard a guess as to what the Israelites do at this point? Moses has just come to them, said to them, God's going to rescue us. He's appeared to be in a burning bush. He's going to bring us out. He's going to take us to the promised land. It's finally time that we go. And they would have all known about this. And they go, woo Egyptians find out. Pharaoh goes, yeah, not in my life. And they make their life hard. What do you think the Israelites should do at this exact moment? Have a guess. They whinge. Thank you. Whoever said whinge. They complain. They withdraw their support from Moses. Another little window into the future, you think? (laughs) The Israelites go, leave us alone, Moses. You've already created enough headaches for us. And ironically, that's one of the last times you hear about the Israelites until the 10th plague. At no point through the plagues, really, do do they ever re-support, do you read that they re-support Moses? Which leads one to assume that the plagues happen without the Israelite support. (laughs) They just go, Moses, would you shut up, damn it, our life's already hard enough. But Moses is obeying God. And so Moses and Aaron, after being rejected by the Israelites, still carrying on with Pharaoh, and we have the situation with the snakes, where Aaron throws his staff down, turns into a snake, the magicians of Pharaoh throw their staffs down, they turn into snakes, and what then happens, do you think? Have a guess. You've got a bunch of snakes from the magicians, one snake from Aaron. What do you think happens? Aaron's snake eats all the other snakes and they still don't work it out yet. So that brings us up to speed with the first plague. How's that for an introduction to today? (laughs) (laughs) But there's an introduction into our series and that's... That may be long-winded but it sets it up quite nicely and it's given... Hopefully it's given you a good picture as to where we're going and what's going to be happening from now on. Okay, the scene has been set from this point on. So now we get to the first plague. And as I said at the beginning, the ten plagues, each of the ten were quite deliberate. They were aimed at something. They weren't just random, oh, I feel like turning the water to blood today. Or toss a coin, what are we going to do? No, they were very, very deliberately aimed at something. Okay? It's important to understand that. And the fact is, anyone anyone know this? Because this is something I didn't know before preparing this, this sermon. Anyone want to guess what they're aimed at? Other than those I've already told, which is a couple. Gods of Egypt. They're all aimed at different gods of Egypt. Fact. And so 
when you understand that the actual Hebrew word for that we read when we read plague, actually the main meaning of it is blow. Which is rather interesting when you then realise that each of the plagues are aimed at a different Egyptian god. It's a blow to their god. It's a strike. It's a hit. Because back then, nations had different gods, different nations, different gods, and the god that was considered the most powerful was the god of the nation that was most powerful because they received the most blessing and their nation's god had overpowered the other nation's gods. And so really, whoever was the world power at that time, people believed that that nation's god or gods were the most powerful gods. And so what God is saying as he does these plagues to their different gods, to, as he strikes these blows to the different gods of Egypt, he's actually saying to them, this is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, I am more powerful than you. This is not just a battle of letting my people leave this land. This is a battle of which God is more powerful it's a line in the sand moment where God's going, I am God and I'm going to prove to you that I am God. And the original people would have understood this. We miss it because we read the word plague and we go, okay, it was a plague, it was an illness, it was this, it was that. No, it's a blow to the Egyptian God of that particular area. So the first plague is turning the water to blood. Now, what's the obvious question at this point? Any obvious question? What was that? Not a lot. <laughs> There's the answer to that one. Now, the obvious, isn't the obvious question, okay, which Egyptian god are we talking about? Hasn't that got anyone's interest? Good question, Anne. Well done. The Egyptian god name was H-A-P-I, Hapi, Hapi, and he was pictured as a water bearer and known as god of the Nile. Okay, that was Egyptian god number one, two copper blow, to be affected by the god of the Israelites. He was, the water, he was pictured as a water bearer and known as God of the Nile. And God says, I am more powerful than you. And by doing this, it shows Hapi up as a not very good God because he was meant to protect the Nile. He was meant to protect the waterways. The more you worship him, the better the water. He was meant to protect all this and he couldn't against the God of the Israelites. Now, there's... Worth noting that it says the Nile turns to blood. A lot of people try and start going, was it really blood? Was it really human blood or animal blood or was it proper blood? And without dismissing that as, well, who cares? Let me say, who cares? <laughs> because... It's not actually 
a debate as to whether it was proper blood or not. What, the, what Moses is describing is its look, its texture, its colour. It's not meant to be a clinical analysis sent down by Douglas Henley Moyer as to which person's blood this is. Okay, It's not a clinical analysis. It's a look, it's a taste, it's a texture of the water. And there's all sorts of different explanations as to how the, the Nile could have done this and that and all the rest. The fact is God could have done it just like that. Okay? It could well be proper human blood just in copious amounts. I don't know. I'll ask him when I get to heaven. It probably won't matter then, but, you know, I'm a curious sort of person. But it wasn't nice. As, we, as the reading read, the people couldn't drink it. They hated it. Looked awful, tasted awful. No one wanted it. It wasn't just the Nile. It was all the streams and it was even the cisterns that they had already collected when the water was drinkable sitting in people's homes. That was same thing happened to that. Okay? Every drop of water in the land turned to this blood. And you read through that and it was tasteless and it was awful and all the rest and the people suffered quite badly. The fish died. All these terrible things happened as a result of this. And if you go down to verse 22, okay, we've just, Moses has just finished describing it. Verse 21 reads, The fish in the Nile died and the river smelled so bad the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. Verse 22, But the Egyptian magicians did the same thing by their secret arts and Pharaoh's heart became hard and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron. There's two things that maybe it's just the way my brain operates but maybe someone else in here thinks just like me. (laughs) Pity for you. But the obvious question for me is if those magicians are so good what was the point in making the river blood again? Why wouldn't you show how awesome your God is by reversing it? Making the water drinkable again? No, no, we've just had a week of not being able to drink water because it tasted, looked and smelt so bad, so we're going to make you go through it for another week. <laughs> Good work. Wouldn't you reverse it if, if your gods were so good? And the other thing which... I'm going to answer now because it does come out regularly through the series, especially the first half during the plagues, is where it says Pharaoh's heart became hard. And on occasions it says God made Pharaoh's heart go hard. Which sounds, well, hold a sec. That's not very fair. What if It makes it sound as though God is actually making Pharaoh's heart unresponsive to God and then blaming Pharaoh for his heart being hard. And that's not very fair, is it? If I take your hand and then slap you across the face, I go, you're an idiot, you slapped yourself across the face. (laughs) Would you go, hold a sec. (laughs) That's not very fair, you slapped me across the face. Your hand hit your face. You see what I mean? What's it actually saying? And we need to address this and understand this because this is really important. Not just in the context of Pharaoh and 
the plagues, but in our general view of God. Okay? And it's a bit like God has not made Pharaoh's heart go hard, so Pharaoh can't respond to God. God knows that by saying the truth, Pharaoh is not going to respond to God, and so he makes the truth be known. Because he knows Pharaoh will reject that. And the longer you reject God, it's human nature, and God knows human nature better than we know human nature. It's human nature. The longer you ignore God, the harder it is to then hear God. And there comes a point when it doesn't matter what God says to you or how he says it. If you've been ignoring God for so long, you will not even recognise it to be God, even if he yelled in your face. You would still brush it off as something else. Eventually, human hearts get that hard that you will not hear God regardless. And that's what it's saying here. God knows how Pharaoh is going to respond to the truth, and so he makes sure the truth is told. Is God wrong for making sure the truth is told? No. But what it's saying is he knows that Pharaoh is going to respond by rejecting him. And the more Pharaoh rejects him, the harder it's going to be for Pharaoh to hear God. And we see that throughout the plagues. So those two things need to be understood. So at the end of it, at the end of our reading, Pharaoh's heart became hard, would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not even take this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water of the river. So Pharaoh just goes, yeah, okay, you turn Nile to blood. My magicians did the same thing. Thank you very much, guys. And he just turns around, doesn't care. Whatever, move on. Does not try listen to God. Why? Because it doesn't suit him. He thinks he knows better than God. We don't do that, do we? God says, I want you to do this, or I want you to stop doing that, or I want you to or I'm going to challenge you to change this behaviour, or I'm going to challenge you to... And we say yes, God, every single time, don't we? We go, absolutely. We're no better. We're no better than the Israelites, we're no better than the Egyptians. It's funny, and I'm going to shame him, I've, I've shamed him before, but... I find this absolutely incredible. The Bible talks about, and this is the challenge for the week. This is the challenge for the week. The challenge being, how well do you listen to God and who do you blame when things go wrong? Okay? That's the challenge for the week. Let let me finish on this story. I've told this before, but I want to tell it again because it happened again this morning. And that's why it's fresh in my mind. Every week, Manny gets pocket money. Okay? Now, the Bible... Jesus many times says, it's a childlike faith. You come to God as a child. 
It's not as a knowledgeable, intelligent, suave, sophisticated adult that's going to get into heaven. It's the child. It's the childlike faith. It's the childlike trust that people come to God in. We gave Manny's pocket money this morning, right? All of $4.20. And that's about a record amount for him because he gets it according to what he does and doesn't do during the week and it gets marked. $4.20, record amount for the week, okay? And I split it up into three lots for him, okay? So there's a saving amount that goes into a money box and then the other two is goes into a spending jar and he likes to save that up across the course of the year to buy Lego at the end of the year, okay? And then the other bit is God money. And you see him each week with his little jar. That's where the God money comes from, okay? His pocket money. 70 cents of the $4.20 went into savings, okay? $3.50 left. I put it into a $2 and a $1.50. We had a 10-minute argument because he wanted to give the $2, in fact $2.50, to God. And when I was trying to encourage him that let's just give the $1.50 to God, which is still over 33%, mind you, tithing at over 33% of his income, anyone else in the church want to challenge that, try beat that, tithe at 33%? He blew up because I was making him do the I wanted him to do the dollar fifty and not the two dollars. Now that's childlike faith in obeying God. Now I know there'll be some people here, and you don't have to put your hand up, I'm not gonna embarrass you, but there will be some people going, Oh, who cares? He's only a seven year old child, it's only four dollars twenty. He's got no bills, he's got no overheads, you provide food for him, he doesn't have to run a car, he doesn't have to pay electricity or water or whatever. To that I say, garbage. That is his money, he wants to buy Lego, he wants to buy lunch orders, he has wants that he wants to spend his money on, but to him, God is more important than the lunch order, than the Lego, than whatever else he goes to. God is number one in his life. And somewhere along the line, as we grow older, we tend to relegate God in importance. We say God's number one, but when it actually comes to how we act, the decisions we make, they reveal who we really are. And that's what I challenged everyone with last week. As we concluded the series, Who is Jesus? I challenge you that it's not your words that will count. It's your actions that will count. That reveals who you are and what you believe and what you truly value what your priorities are. Your actions speak louder than your words. My actions speak louder than my words. Always have, always will. And that's the challenge for us as Christians. The, the world outside, you want to know their biggest gripe with the church today? There's a few, I get it. But you want to know their biggest one? The church's words don't meet up with the church's actions. They contradict each other. That's the world's biggest criticism of the church today. There is no coherence between the two. 
If we're to live as God wants us to live, if you're genuinely a Christian, then your words and your actions are the same and people will see that and you will be different. As we'll get to later in this series, the Israelites wanted to keep blaming God for their problems. They created their problems. We create our problems. Eventually, one day in this series, we're going to get to the point where the Egyptians are complaining to Moses about wanting to go back to Egypt because they're onions. Now, I've never had an Egyptian onion in my life, but they must have been good because they're willing to trade their freedom for them. But we're no different. We are no different today. We trade the most insignificant, irrelevant things for our relationship with God. It's a scary thought. But when you understand that these are God's chosen people, the Israelites were God's chosen people to reveal God to the world. That was their role. Their role was not to sit in an ivory tower, look, saying, how great are we, making it hard for everyone else to come in and know God. They were meant to go out to the world and reveal God to the world. Anyone want to hazard a guess as to what the church's mission today is? Same. <laughs> Same. Exactly. The church's role today is not to sit in an ivory tower and go, how great is God? The mission of the church today is to go out to the world, just like the Israelites were meant to go out to the world and reveal how great God is. Do we? Do we? Honestly? Not as a church, as Wingham Baptist Church, do we do that? Because the New Testament is full of, Jesus said multiple times, there are going to be people who come up to me at the day of judgment and want to give me a high five and go, G'day mate, I'm so, I've been waiting to come here for so long and party with you and Jesus is going to go, take a hike because I don't know you. Now, we're not talking about the average Joe on the street who's never attended church in his life. Jesus is talking about the ones who rolled into church every Sunday, said amen at the right points, nodded at the right points during the sermon to make sure that the preacher doesn't think they're asleep, sing loud enough just to make sure that, you know, I'm, I'm singing. They're the people that Jesus is actually talking to. There are going to be a lot of shocked people. And we're not talking about that there's going to be a lot of shocked people from the world who rejected Jesus, but there's going to be a lot of shocked people from what is known as the church because Jesus is going to reject them saying, never knew you. Yeah, you may have rocked up to church on Sunday, but you never gave me your heart. You never lived for me. And that's what we're going to see in this series with the Jews. The Jews wanted all the benefits that God could give. They wanted the freedom. They wanted the promised land. They wanted out of Egypt. But they weren't willing to give God their heart. They weren't willing to obey God. It was always a negotiation. It was always a, well, we want to do this and God wants us to do that. But what if we kind of come like a third of the way or halfway and maybe we can reach a compromise and... We're going to see that in this series, but we're no different today, 3,500 years later, this side of the cross. Are we? So what's the challenge for the week? 
It can be as simple or as complicated as you want. Simple version, stop blaming God. Listen to God, do what God says willingly. There's the key word. Willingly. Willingly do what God wants. Not begrudgingly, not trying to negotiate, not dragging the feet. Willingly do what God wants. And to be able to do that, you're going to need to be praying, reading God's word, and actually hearing God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have more patience with us than we have with you. We thank you that you know us better than we know ourselves, and yet despite the fact you know us, you still love us, and you still want us to come into your kingdom. You want to be a part of our lives. You want to shape us and mould us. And in 3,500 years, it can be really depressing to think that human nature has not changed. But you already knew that and you still created us. And so I pray that this week we will come to you willingly, fully submitting to you and who you are and what you want. And we pray to you for this in your son's name. Amen.